outside. Oh, there we go. Hello. <laughs> I, I was just saying that it's an incredible day to be here. Uh, we're kind of launching into the Christmas season. The building is just packed. There are people getting baptized. There are children being dedicated. Songs are being played on the organ. This is a good morning to be at Wallenstein. I'm really excited to be here. It's my first time preaching at Wallenstein since kind of COVID has passed us somewhat. And, uh, you know, so much different preaching to this room than an empty room. And I'm liking this a lot better. So thanks for being here this morning. Um, And I'm really excited about Christmas, I always seem to get a chance to preach around Christmas. I'm kind of like the Hallmark Channel around here. I only come on at Christmas. Um, But that's okay. I won't take it too personally. Um, And I think partly because I'm always excited about Christmas. But um, Christmas hits a little different for me in my house this year uh, because we're expecting a little baby boy to join our family in just a couple of months. So... Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting to, uh, to just be here to speak about Jesus and, and all that he has done. Uh, we're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. I think it's appropriate because we're at Wallenstein Bible Chapel. It seems like a thing we should be doing. Uh, so I don't want to take too much time introduction. I just really want to jump right in. And our main text this morning is in Luke chapter 4. But the first text I'd like to read is from Luke chapter 2. It's a really familiar story to many of us, but it's the Christmas story, and I'd just like to, to read that now. It says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Cornelius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger, because there was no room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I will bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. And the big question that I want us to tackle this morning is... Why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? What did Jesus do? We heard about it this morning, God becoming man. Why was he here? What did Jesus do? And I don't want to consider Jesus' purpose in like a really kind of fluffy way, right? I think that like I've titled this message, Jesus Prophesied Purpose, And often when we talk about prophecy or we talk about purpose, we're taking a really 
big 30,000 foot view at things. You know, isn't it cool that God did this? Or, you know, what about the purpose of that? But when I talk about purpose, I don't mean it in like a, an existential way. I mean it in a God-given mission kind of way. When I talk about purpose, I don't mean like let's sit under a tree and think about, you know, why do we do this and what. I want to think about purpose this morning with you, kind of like the question that you'd be asked if you're entering another nation, right? Like let's say you want to go to Florida, so you pack the kids in the car, you drive to the border, you're going to come across a stern individual with a badge and a gun, and they're going to ask you a whole bunch of different things. Who knows what they could ask you, but I am pretty sure that they're going to ask you this one question, what's the purpose of your visit? If you get super fluffy and like existential with them, you're going to have a real problem, right? <laughs> you can't be like, well, purpose, it's hard to define. My friends think this, but I think this. And really, like, we just need to all agree. You're going to have a real bad time if you start thinking about that. The answer that they want to hear is, I'm going with my family. We're going to Disneyland. We're staying at the park, and we're coming back in a week from now. If you say that, you're good to go, right? They're gonna approve what you wanna do. They're gonna send you on your way. Um, and that's the way that I want us to consider purpose today. I wanna look at Jesus' life, his purpose, but not the big picture purpose. I suspect we hear a lot about that through this Christmas season. I wanna think about the day-to-day -day in Jesus' life. I want to think about how he walked when he came here. What did he actually do? And there's a lot of ways that we could consider that. And, um, you know, I could kind of look over Jesus' life and pull a few things out and say, you know, this is why. But actually, we have a really interesting opportunity to hear about Jesus' purpose, both from himself and an Old Testament prophet right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the, the birth story, that's in Luke chapter two, in Luke chapter four, so right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes to his hometown church, his hometown synagogue, and he gets the chance to open the scriptures and read to the people, right? And he gets to a prophetic text in Isaiah 61, and he picks up the scroll and he reads it to them. And this text talks so much about Jesus' purpose. So I'd like us to read that together now. It says this in Luke chapter four, verses 18 to 21. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were on him. And he began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What an entrance, right? For his hometown, what a wow. You know, I'm in sales. If you're in sales, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're networking, you gotta have a little bit of like a punchy go-to elevator pitch, right? Who are you? Why are you doing this? What are you doing? So when you meet new people, you can tell them. Look at what Jesus says 
to the people. Pretty brief introduction, pretty impactful. And so I just want to take some time this morning to unpack what he says here. This comes from the book of Isaiah and it comes from the lips of Jesus. And I think the first thing that really catches my eye is that Jesus knew his purpose. He said to the crowd, and he leads with a pretty significant statement, he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And what Jesus is doing here, I think could perhaps be lost on us because we don't see the significance of what he's saying. The word Messiah, that means anointed one. The word Christ, that means anointed one. So when we say Jesus Messiah, we say Jesus the anointed one. We say Jesus Christ, it's Jesus the anointed one. When he opens the scripture and says the spirit of the Lord is on me, he has anointed me. The significance of that would not have been lost on the people who are listening to him. He is telling them, I am here, I am the Messiah. And maybe if they really didn't know their Bible, they they might not know, but these people have been waiting for a Messiah. They have been waiting for the Lord's anointed, and he opens the scriptures and says, here I am. Jesus knew why he was here. He had no question, right? And then he goes on to talk about, as the Messiah, what am I going to do? What am I gonna do? How am I gonna live my life? How am I gonna carry myself into this world? I've come, here I am, this is what I'm gonna do. The first thing he says is that he's gonna proclaim good news to the poor. And I love this. God has always had a special heart for the humble, for the downtrodden, for the broken. What an incredible thing to know that God is here to bring hope to the poor. In Jesus' ministry, he wasn't found in lofty buildings. He didn't go to the biggest temples and the richest people and hang out with them. Jesus did his ministry in the streets. He did it beside a lake. He did it on a hill. He did it in the town square, in the public synagogue, in the home of anyone who would welcome him. Jesus came for everyone. Now, some of us here are rich, and this is a bit of a warning. Jesus is bringing good news to everyone, not just the rich. I think we often feel entitled because we so often get what we want, right? We think that maybe there's something special for us, but Jesus' message isn't special for us. It's for everyone. There were rich people that found saving faith in Jesus, but not many. He came to bring hope to the poor. So often the rich find their hope elsewhere. His purpose was for everyone. Next he says he has been sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and he's just reiterating, he's saying I was sent by God to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now in the first sentence I think he's talking about actual poor people and when we're dealing with prophecy things can change pretty rapidly from line to line when he's talking about freedom for prisoners he's not talking about 
physical prisoners. He's not saying, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna overthrow the government, I'm gonna go to jail, I'm gonna break people out, I'm gonna you know, change the system. He could have if he wanted to, but that wasn't his purpose. He was sent to proclaim freedom to prisoners, spiritual prisoners, lost, alone, bound in chains of sin and darkness, those who don't know the Lord. Jesus was very clear. He was here for those people. He says at a few points in scripture, he says, I'm not here for the righteous. I'm here for the unrighteous. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. He was here for people who need the Lord. He's here for us. And there's no sin that he can't conquer. There's no debt that he can't pay back. There's no waywardness that brings us too far from the love of God. And we see this all throughout his ministry, but especially in his work on the cross, right? He is here to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. He canceled the penalties of sin and death so that all of us could come into a relationship with him. Next, he says that he's here for recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. And I think here, he's actually talking both physically and spiritually. Jesus uses you know, language of oppression or blindness. Um, God wants to give you spiritual sight. If you don't have eyes to see the things of God, he wants to give you those eyes to see. He wants to cure your spiritual blindness. If there's oppression and weight on your life, he wants to cure that and free you from that. He came so that we could have life and life abundantly. Not so that we could live under the shadow of oppression, but that we could live in the freedom that Christ offers. But he's also talking about actual physical ailments, actual oppression. When people came to see Jesus in his ministry, Right? The blind could see, the lame could walk, the dead were raised. Jesus cared about the whole person. And the same is true with oppression. People came to Jesus with huge weight of sin on their back and he set them free. People came to Jesus possessed by demons and he set them free. Jesus was here to recover sight for the blind and set the oppressed free. Finally, it was Jesus' purpose to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what does this mean? Some people think, well, you know, it's obvious Jesus is going to be here for a year. He's going to do his ministry. He's going to go. This is not the meaning of this. His ministry lasted for uh, about three years, and he was just at the beginning of it now. The year of the Lord's favor could be a reference to the year of Jubilee. This was a thing that God had commanded back in the Old Testament that once every 50 years, that there would be a time of freedom, of celebration in the land. If you were a slave, you would be set free. If you owed a mortgage, it would be canceled. If you were so poor that you had to sell your farmland to someone else, you'd get it back after 50 years. This is perhaps what he's referencing. Um, Can you imagine a year with that type of freedom, right? 
But I think that that type of freedom actually hung over the people of Israel a little bit because it was something that was commanded by God, but it was something that they never practiced. We don't know for sure in scripture. Uh, Maybe they did it once, maybe a couple of times, but it's never clear that they did it even once. It's certainly not something that they made a regular practice of doing. Can you imagine being a poor people in that situation, knowing that God has commanded this, knowing that you are in debt, that you are enslaved, and that you're supposed to be being set free because that's what God wants for you, but your leaders are too corrupt, and it never happens. Generation after generation of poverty and pain because people are refusing to listen to the word of God. What Jesus is saying here is that he is coming to bring freedom that he is coming to bring the Lord's favor, that you might have been forgotten by your leaders, but you are remembered by God. Your pain, your suffering, your cries have been heard. And even, excuse me, more than that, he's just simply saying that I'm here because I love you. Imagine the time that Jesus is stepping into, right? When Jesus comes, he finds more demon-possessed people than faithful people. When Jesus comes, the religious people who are supposed to be safeguarding the religious system in Israel, they can't even recognize the Messiah, Jesus, when he's right in front of them. But he came because he loves us, because we, as the human race, have the favor of our creator. No matter how far we wandered, he loves us. This is why Jesus is here, to proclaim that we have the favor of God. I love that his purpose was prophesied, right? I think it's really cool that the book of Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus came in to the world. 700 years for context is like 1300, if we were to look back. Does anyone know anything meaningful that happened in the year 1300? I was looking this up on Wikipedia in preparation for today. There was a lot of war, there was a lot of disease, and people learned to knit. (laughs) This is it. This is it. This is what Wikipedia says. But just think about it. Like the huge thinkers, Michelangelo, Raphael, you know, Da Vinci, these people won't even be born yet for 200 years. We're talking about knights, castles, the Middle Ages. That's a long time ago. That's how long Isaiah was removed from the time of Jesus. 700 years is a long time to wait for a Messiah. But the thing that makes me more excited than just the coolness of that is what was happening in the time of Isaiah. When God is prophesying this coming Savior who will set us free, who will love us, who will bring us his favor, what's happening Isaiah served the people of Israel. His ministry was, you know, in Jerusalem and the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel, some of them were good during his time, but some of them were really wicked and the people's hearts were certainly not with God. They were openly defiant of him, practicing all sorts of evil wickedness. They were abandoning his way 
So God sent prophets like Isaiah to say, come back to me, come back to me, come back to me. And there were stern warnings in there, difficult things to hear. But whenever God speaks to his people, we hear his love for us. When God opens his mouth to warn us, we also find these pictures of hope and joy and a future. Because that's who God is at his very core. He is love for us. The heart of the Lord is for their salvation, even when the people are actively against him. There's one way to test a prophecy, if you don't know what it is, it's does it actually happen, right? So if you prophesy something and it doesn't happen, you're a false prophet, you're not true. If you prophesy something and it does happen, well maybe there's something there. So let's look at what happened with Jesus in his life. And this is from Luke chapter five, just a few moments or a short period of time after he announced this ministry. Um, it says, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. This is like a classic Sunday school story, right? Are we picturing this? Does someone have a flannel board anywhere that we could, you know, this is, this is classic, but this is so profound. Don't just dismiss this as something that you know. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered this man on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked them, why do you say these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take your mat, and go home. Immediately the man stood up in front of them, took the wood he had been lying on, went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praises to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things. What does Jesus do? Right? When Jesus comes into contact with people, he lives out the things that he said he was going to do. He meets this poor man. There would have been very few poorer than a man who couldn't walk. And he meets them under really bizarre circumstances, right? Have you ever met someone who was lowered on a rope down in front of you? Jesus could have said anything to this guy. He could have made a sarcastic comment. He could have, but he called him friend because he knew that desperate people do desperate things. And he made this man feel welcomed and heard. He saw this man's Sin before he saw his ailment, right? He looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, you're on a mat, why can't you walk? He says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus was about freedom from sin. He cares for the whole person. After he forgives this man's sin, he, he heals him of his ailment. He says, take up your mat and walk and go home. And all who saw this were amazed by what they had seen, right? They were amazed that what Jesus had done, they could see that they were living in a time of God's favor. They praised God. 
And so I just want to ask us, ask ourselves, this was the ministry of Jesus. This was prophesied. He said he was going to do this, and he does it. And he calls us to follow him. Right? When, when Jesus meets people and they say, you know, Jesus, like this is really, I, I want to be part of what you're doing. He says, great, follow me. Do we know our purpose? Do we know our purpose the way that Jesus did? Do we proclaim good news to the poor? Do we proclaim freedom to prisoners? Does our ministry bring us in the paths of people who are sick and oppressed? This was super challenging for me as I was preparing this message because so often it's easy to get comfortable inside of our walls and I thought it connected really well with what Gary was talking about last week. It's really easy to sit here with people that you know. It's easy to be here and be comfortable when the people that you're talking to already know about the freedom of God. It's somewhat easy to bring food to someone in your small group who's sick. It's somewhat easy to talk with a brother or sister in Christ who's going through a hard time and pray together. But what if you don't know that person? What if there's someone sick on your street or in your workplace? What if there's someone you know who's mentally ill, they don't know the Lord? Do we let the awkwardness and the difficulty of that type of interaction just keep us here? And what I want to challenge us on and the thing that really stirred in my heart was I think that as a group of people, we do this really well, right? We have this message, we have this sermon series, we're clarifying our vision, and all these things are in here. But it's really easy, really easy to outsource this work to someone else who we think is better suited, right? This is the culture that we live in. This is what we do. If I don't know how to do something at home, I call someone else who knows how to fix it. If I don't know how to fix my car, I go to a shop. If I don't know how to bake something, I go pick it up at a bakery. If I want a delicious dinner and no work, I go to a restaurant. This is the way that we work. And this is a good thing. You know, I'm a free market, small business kind of guy. If you've got a side hustle, if you're good at something, make a business, make some money. This is good. I love that. I hate that if that's how we see ministry. Do we think about this person's an evangelist? They got this. I don't have to do it. This person's really good at talking to people. I don't have to do it. You know, this person has such a bright light. I can sit back and cheer for them. Now, God calls us to support those who go out. He calls us to support our missionaries. He calls us to support our ministries. But what's happening in our hearts? And if you serve the church in a way that's not maybe so big and glamorous. Maybe you haven't healed anyone this week. Maybe you didn't, you know, go out and preach the word of God to 10,000 people this week. I'm not trying to make you feel small. Jesus talks a lot about small things that we can do for the kingdom of God. And one of the ministries that I love most of all that I've ever seen in my life is from my grandfather, Grandpa Freedy. Um, 
back when Wallenstein was a much smaller church and we met upstairs in the old sanctuary. We had, I don't know how to phrase this properly, uh, the water situation at Wallenstein was not great, right? <laughs> there's, there's laughs from people who know, but I'm trying to think of words I can adequately use to describe what would happen when you turned on a tap here. I think that like undrinkable comes to mind. Uh, biohazard also springs to that. Like, it was terrible. I have memories as a young child of sitting in the back pews. There was a fountain like 50, 75 feet away from the back of the pews, someone would push that fountain and you could smell the water. I have no idea how we're all here, but we are. This is good. But my grandpa was like, you know, this is, this is not good. We have people coming, we have preachers coming from all over to bring us the word of God. And so he had, at his home, he lived just up the road in Wallenstein. He had a well that he had dug with his own two hands and it gave much better water. So every Sunday he would take a cup with a little plastic lid and he would bring it, he would pour it into a glass and he would put it up on the pulpit for the preacher. Every Sunday. And you couldn't get him to not come to church because he had to bring the water. Right? That ministry, that's important. If you're doing something small, something that no one sees, something humble, I'm not saying that what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is amazing. Every single thing we do together builds the kingdom of God. But we need to pair our ministries, the things that we do in the church, with a life of faithfulness that looks like the life of Jesus. Jesus' ministry wasn't organized, it wasn't filed, it wasn't Wednesday night I do this, Sunday morning I do this. He lived a life of faithfulness because he knew his purpose. Do we live that same life of faithfulness every day, whether we're in these walls or not? That's what God calls us to. And he calls us to this, to do all the things, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom from prisoners, that there's freedom from sin, there's relationship with God. He wants us to go into the world and reach people who are oppressed people who are sick. But most of all, I think he wants us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do we do this? When people outside of these walls think about Wallenstein, when they think about the church, do they think, wow, there's a group of people who let me know that I am loved by God? I hope so. I hope so, but it's been a real challenge to me because so often I meet people who say, oh, the church, oh, and there's pain there. And it's, it's a battle and it's warfare and I'm not here to say that some, like, I don't want to get into the, the whole big picture there, but, but I think that there's just this important message that Jesus was uncompromising, right? He didn't walk away and say, yes, man, easy things to get people to like his ministry. He was strong, he was firm. But when people interacted with Jesus, they had a sense that they were loved by God. He calls us out into the world to show those same things. And I think that that is a little piece of the magic of Christmas time. I don't know if you guys sense it, but when I'm out and about and there's snowfall and there's Christmas carols and there's all this stuff, it's just the world feels just a little brighter, feels a little lighter. And maybe, 
I'm naive and people are just super greedy and they're looking forward to time off and things are gonna get, maybe. But maybe part of that little bit of magic that comes with Christmas time is because this is the only time of year, really, that the message of Jesus seeps into the broader world. That people are remembered just for a moment when they see a manger or a Christmas tree that they have the favor of God, that Jesus came, and that he loves us. We are called into the world to bring that message, and it's a wonderful and unique time of year. If that's not the way that we've been living our lives, if we're not doing our day-to-day the same way that Jesus did, if we haven't connected with that purpose the way that Jesus did, this is a great time to start. Because we can tell people about Jesus. We can share the things that he has given to us. We can walk with those who need to be supported. And this is what comes up time and time again. It's the last thing that the angels said in our story in Luke 2. The favor of God. It's the last thing that Jesus says as part of his purpose. The favor of God. Let's go into this world and remind everyone that Jesus came to show us that we have the favor of God. Lord, it's so good to sing a song like that and to hear the voices, to feel moved in our spirit Uh, But Lord, I pray that you would keep us from enjoying the songs, but not enjoying the one we're singing about. Or to feel warm in our hearts about Jesus, but not not go out of here ready to follow hard after him. So I pray, Lord, that you would make that true of us. If there's anyone here who's never trusted in Jesus, I pray that they would see that he's the one who's trustworthy. And for those of us who have, Lord, I pray that we'd take heed to the message we've heard today. And follow Jesus into the world to love people, to open the eyes of the blind, to free the oppressed. Would you use us to do that great work today? We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God be with you in the week ahead.